Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. Today, we will be continuing our series on the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're fortunate to have one of the leading experts in the world in terms of anxiety disorders and related mood disorders, Dr. Anne-Marie Albano. Dr. Albano is a professor of medical psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and is the founding director of the Columbia University Clinic for Anxiety and Related Disorders and the clinical director of the Youth Anxiety Center at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Thank you for being with us today, Anne-Marie. Thank you for having me, Dr. Lieberman. As somebody who is uh, uh, an expert in mood and anxiety disorders, you are in great demand these days because if you are not anxious, then there's something wrong because we have every reason to be anxious in a whole variety of ways. So the first question that I would want to ask you, Anne-Marie, is the situation that we're faced with this COVID virus pandemic is all around us and is uh, seemingly unending, or at least we don't know how to define when the end will be. So people are rightfully experiencing a, a range of emotions which have been described as stress, as anxiety, as different things. What is the range of emotions that you would expect people normatively to be experiencing under these circumstances? Well, that's a great question. And yes, it falls into what we've been working with for 30 years, which is anxiety. Here's one of the things we need to know is when faced with unpredictability, the inability to predict what's going to happen, and also faced with the feelings of not being able to control situations, and that's difficult for us right now, anxiety then is normal to experience. Anxiety is a normal human emotion that we have to help prepare us for danger and protect us, to help us problem solve when we are faced with difficult situations. We're feeling more anxious and people should be feeling more anxious and a bit more worried because we don't know how long this will last. And we also don't know who's affected, who may have been walking around, who's carrying and not symptomatic as yet. But the thing we do know is that we can learn how to rein in this anxiety and not let it get out of control by sticking to facts. And we also will be experiencing other emotions during this time, including sadness and fatigue and feelings of irritability and anger. Depending upon the situations that you are having to deal with, from being a frontline worker to being a parent who has to stay at home and work from home, there's a range of different feelings that you might have now that would be considered normal. Uh, owning them and recognizing them is the key then to keeping them under your control. So there's a reason to be anxious, frightened because of the threat of a infectious disease that you could catch and you know, suffer from or even die from. And then there's also the disruption to your life in terms of you know, your normal activities, your working, your income your domestic life, you have children, their inability to be in school and having to care for them. So there's this added inconvenience, which is more than an inconvenience. And then on top of that, there's the unpredictability and uncertainty of how this is going to play out. 
So when you say that we can't control the virus or how events are going to play out, but you can learn how to control or cope with your emotional reactions to it, what does this actually entail and how does that work? So this is the key to being well and staying well. The very first thing we want people to do, first and foremost, in managing your emotions is take stock in them. If you just sit for a few seconds and look inwards and sort of do a scan of your thoughts, what are you saying to yourself? How are you talking to yourself moment to moment through the day as you're getting new information about whether things are going to open up or not, about how your stock portfolio has been doing, about what your kids are up to? Take stock in what you're saying to yourself because negative focused thinking is going to add to your stress levels and make you more anxious. If you're predicting the worst is going to happen and you're not giving yourself the chance to think through how to plan and cope with whatever does happen. The second thing you have to do is do sort of a, like doctors do, a review of systems. How are you feeling? What's your head feel like? What's your chest feel like? How's your stomach, your muscles? Are you feeling tension? Are you feeling more breathless because you're anxious? Are you not getting enough exercise so you're feeling more tight and closed in and a bit more claustrophobic? You have to take stock of what physically you feel. Are you eating well or not? Concentrating or unable? And recognize where you've gone off your baseline. Well, as, well, as you've been saying this, I've been doing that. And, <laughs> And I'm not feeling too good. I mean, I'm really annoyed at all this inconvenience that I'm experiencing and the monotony of it occurring day after day. And physically, I feel like uh, I haven't gotten out to play tennis or to jog. Yeah, excellent. So, you know, and in fact, Jeff, one of the things I would say is you can even as you're doing this, write down those things that you notice about yourself. I can't get out to jog. I haven't seen people that I like to hang out with and I work with. I haven't gotten things done that I need to. Write those things down. I can't sleep well. Because what we have to do then is engage in self-care. And I want everybody to hear this. This is very much, you have to take care of you first. Then you can be able to take care of your job, your kids, your partners or friends. First, you have to engage in self-care. And so you have to figure out in this new normal, which may be a 700 square foot um, little apartment, or it could be in a house or who knows where you are. You've got to think of how can you get into a routine that is similar to your daily routine that you tend to miss? How can you get movement in your life and exercise? If you can't go to the tennis courts, what can you do? Everything from using the stairs in an apartment building to jumping jacks and doing online different types of physical exercise, what can you do? And then a big thing is self-care. Are you eating right? Are you sticking to your routines of bathing and showering and taking care of yourself? Are you getting enough sleep? These are so critical for us to do, first and foremost. You're saying that one needs to take stock of yourself, both emotionally, psychologically, and then physically, and even to the point of trying to record it uh, to make sure that you're focusing your attention on things in some detail and then try and gain some control over your situation by developing a schedule of activities or ways to try and normalize or do things to replace what you're not able to do with some equivalent type of activity. So am I accurate to infer that these activities or exercises that will help to kind of dispel or expiate the unpleasant feelings you're experiencing 
and also give you a sense of control or mastery over your situation. That's exactly right. That's right on. And a big part of that is taking stock in what your environment is like. If you are at home and you, you aren't going into work, let's say if you are at home, you have to make places in your home as small as it might be or as crowded as it might be that are just for work and nothing else or just for the kids to do school and nothing else. So you do have, as small as your space may be, a separation between work and relaxation. So right? most people might think that, you know, when they're going through this, you just have to hunker down and wait it out. But you're really describing a proactive approach where you basically try and take stock of how it's impacting you and then basically develop a plan for how you're going to deal with it and be an activist as opposed to passive. That's right. Because the number one way that we we need to deal with difficult situations is by knowing what we can control and what we can't. So we can't control the borders of people crossing borders who may be infected, or we're not going to control when a government opens up or not. But we can control in our own world the way we follow the recommendations of the CDC for wearing masks, for washing our hands, and for taking care in that way. We can control in our environment how we organize and structure our day, how we plan activities for our kids. We can control connecting to people that we miss through the telephone or through Zoom calls. You can do those things, and you will feel so much better, and you will stay on top of then the needs that you have for work, for family, for social connections, and so on. So so this is really work. I mean, you can't just sort of slack off and say, I'm going to be a, a couch potato, binge watch some uh, series on TV. You, know, you have to really continue to work, but in a different way than you ordinarily are doing. The big thing, though, too, is you have to plan in your relaxation time. Is this codified anywhere? Are there guidance manuals or instructions that you can refer people to as to how to take control and structure your new life? Here at Columbia on our website in psychiatry, we have a lot of resources that we've put up and websites to go to, not just from our own, but from like the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, ADAA.org. Both of the APAs, American Psychiatric Association, American Psychological, they have great lists and online resources. There's wonderful apps. If I could give a plug for our friends to the north, Anxiety Canada has a wonderful app called MindShift that helps you work through all of these plans for challenging negative thinking, for doing relaxation, for monitoring your mood and activities. So there's great stuff that's online. Okay, so people hear this, they try to take stock, they try to organize a schedule to deal with the disruption to their lives and the emotions they're experiencing, but it's still more than they can handle. They're still feeling so upset, so worried, so frightened. They can't really handle things or they're having difficulty handling things. What else can you suggest? Yeah, now this is very important because there are folks who have been struggling with mental health problems and illnesses since before COVID that could be made worse, worse because they're much more isolated than in the past where maybe someone, a friend or others were looking out for them and engaging them. There's also those who are ill with medical conditions, maybe at home and isolated, the elderly, people who live by themselves, and just also families where parents may be overwhelmed, kids may be overwhelmed. So there's many reasons why this could be worse. This whole period could be worse for someone. The thing is, don't go it alone. 
number one thing is first to reach out to someone who you trust and just to talk and start talking about things. If these apps or these recommendations that we have, if you're not able to do this on your own, one of the silver linings in this dark cloud of COVID is that across the country, we have activated telehealth, telemental health services. That is, you can call us at Columbia, you could call wherever you're local to and get help through a psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, people who will go online with you and do live phone calls or online video calls to assess what's going on and to help you cultivate skills to manage while you're going through this crisis and then later. And there's also telemedicine. Our, our docs, you know this, you can speak to this, are prescribing even for folks you, who need that. How do you know when you need to get professional help? Yeah, now this is, here's a question for folks. I said that first to take stock of how you're feeling, your sleep, your appetite and such. When you look at a list like that, day after day, if you're looking at it a couple of days in a row and things aren't changing, though you're trying. Also rate your mood, rate your anxiety from zero, meaning not there's no problem to 10, meaning I can't motivate myself to lift my head up. I could care less. And if you're hitting four and five consistently and going higher, you have to reach out and call someone. I would say, don't wait. The sooner you call, the better. It's better to talk to someone on the phone who tells you, yeah, this makes sense. We're going through this. Here's a few things and you feel better. And it was a blip versus waiting until it gets really bad. So I would say call as soon as you hear us on this podcast and you know you've been feeling too down and too hopeless for too long, just call to whomever could be there for you in a psychiatry department, a mental health center, to the national hotlines that will help connect you to help right away. So first thing to do is that is understand that it's uh, expected that everybody would be nervous, anxious, worried, frightened about what's going on. But then understand that one has to be active in trying to manage it and to develop a way for them to cope with the situation. And that's taking stock in yourself psychologically as well as physically. And then developing a plan for your activities to develop some structured schedule to try and do things that can replace what you're not able to do ordinarily so that you're not dealing with it passively, but you're doing it with actively. On the other hand, if those don't really work to assuage the negative emotions that you're feeling, and to know that, it's good to make a record, a daily diary of how you're feeling. If it's not getting any better, or if it's getting worse, then err on the side of caution and call for help. Telehealth now makes should make it accessible to virtually everybody, and to get professional input on whether what you're suffering for is really abnormal and uh, problematic and dangerous and needs some kind of treatment, psychotherapeutic, pharmacologic, or otherwise. That's the prescription for adults. What about children? How is this affecting children? You know, we have to think really deeply about what's going on with kids. And I think, quite frankly, we don't talk about what's going on with kids on a national level. It hasn't been in the conversation. Let's just bear in mind that children are continuously growing and developing. And even though for many people, they don't get asked about their child's developmental milestones beyond 
tying their shoes. There are milestones at every age and stage all the way through to launching into adulthood. So there are milestones of learning how to think and you know more objectively and broadly, take others' perspectives. There's milestones in taking on responsibility and being independent in everything from getting dressed to doing their homework on their own, asserting themselves. There's all kinds of social, emotional, and behavioral milestones that kids need to make and meet through the course of development. And school is the number one place where these milestones are cultivated, practiced, and then you know solidified for children, as well as through living with parents at home and, and then practicing some things at home. So kids are losing out in a big way. They've lost half of their school year. If you think about being a high school senior right now, what is your yearbook graduation going to look like? It's going to look like four or five months of pictures, and then it's going to be web pictures. There's a lot that they're missing out on, and they're very sad and also angry about a lot of this. At the same time, the things they're missing out on are causing a great disruption. They're not having the chance to manage milestones and learn and develop in the same way, and they're missing out on real enriched learning experiences that happen in a classroom. So with all of that in mind, the average kid, without any other issues, without any problems of any other sort, is going through a tough time. They are sad. They miss their friends. They are anxious. Is someone close to me, grandparents or somebody, going to get ill and die? Am I going to get this illness? When is it going to stop? That's the average. And then we have kids who have ADHD or an anxiety or depression problem or they may have learning issues, they too are even more disadvantaged because it's harder for them to access the online resources that are being made available to them. And it disadvantages them because they don't have the typical uh, school resources that are there in the classroom for them and with maybe extra help and such, they don't have that at home. So kids are suffering, Jeff, in a lot of different ways. And we also know that for a substantial number of children, where school is the place that they may get three meals a day. They get extra resources and after-school activities and people who help them as being their counselors and school-based services that they have. A lot of kids from disadvantaged and difficult backgrounds are in houses where the parents are overstressed, but the parents themselves may already have big problems from domestic violence to substance abuse and all kinds of natures of, di- of distress. So these kids are being put in harm's way, and their safe haven is not available to them. So we have to think about kids. The kids are going to need a lot of our support when this is done, but they still need it now. We need to get services to them now. Well, what you said is really worrisome because, first of all, they're being affected like uh, everyone is being affected, but then even more so because it's occurring during critical stages of their development, which they're not able to sort of navigate and and fulfill in the normal way. But whereas you gave us kind of a guideline, survival guide for how to manage things in this crisis that adults can apply and and access online or to reach out to get uh, kids are not necessarily as able to avail themselves of these kinds of resources. So what should parents do to try and help them? Or what can kids do to try and help themselves? In terms of at home, the best thing parents can do is, again, keep your kids on a school day schedule as much as possible, meaning Monday through Friday, get them up at the time they'd normally get up, 
after school, get their breakfast, and start their school routine. It's during the school hours that they should be doing, if not online learning that's provided by the school, get as much as you can from the school to guide the home-based learning that has to happen. Older kids can self-direct a little bit better here than the younger children can. You've got to make some routines and schedules where there's breaks for the kids to get up and run around. Unlike school where they may be in it from eight in the morning till three in the afternoon, you're not there to see how many times they're changing classes or getting up breaks and doing things. You've got to give breaks to your kids to bounce around a bit and play, but that needs to occur during the school day. And in a home where there's more than one parent, you've got to take turns in who's doing the homeschooling in the morning, who's doing it in the afternoon and work this out. Or get other family members to Skype in and they take over for the kids and teaching them while you are doing the work you have to do. But this has to happen. The kids need a schedule. The kids also need one-on-one time with you. So there's got to be more than ever. This is the time where you schedule things that you're doing with your kids for their satisfaction. Play with them, but let them direct the play. No judging their play, no commenting on their play. No matter how silly it is, play with your kids according to what they want to do for at least 15 minutes a day. It'll give them so much more sense of security, and it'll help them to focus and then listen to you at times when you do give them directions later. And stick to bedtime routines. So that's at home. Those are critical things to do at home. You can also, because kids want to feel that they are contributing and have meaning. Number one is you do want to validate their feelings. If they feel angry, upset, validate, let them express it, and then help them solve how to manage some of that by having online meetups with their friends and things, but also ask them how do they want to help others? Making cards and pictures to send to the people in the hospital, whether they're the workers or patients, reaching out to family members. What things can the kids do to help others? Because that'll put them in a sense, again, of control and contributing. And then, you know, the other thing is think about some of the things that you can do if you, you know, do the if then. If you do your schooling and we all get along during the week, then on the weekends, we're going to take on some kind of fun family project or thing that you're doing that the kids want to do, not that the parents want to do. So you might wind up eating really bad tasting cookies or whatever, but let it happen because that's rewarding them. Yes, rewarding them for attending during the week. But when it comes to these kids from more difficult situations, we do need the school counselors, therapists who have worked with those kids and the schools to check in on them and try to see how those kids are faring. A lot of those kids don't have online resources. It may be just phone calls, but we need to watch out and we need to make arrangements for how to welcome them back to school when the time comes and maybe deal with some issues that have come up that have been very heavy for them in this time period. In terms of kids that may have pre-existing conditions or special needs, just like parents are encouraged to develop schedules to occupy them and structure their day, like you're describing, where there's pre-existing needs for additional help that parents need to mobilize to establish those connections, albeit virtually, while this sort of suspension of normal activities is in place. So as you said before, the healthcare profession's uh, utilization of telemedicine and virtual means of communication has increased exponentially since the crisis hit. And it's now 
all hands on deck using virtual means of communication. So parents need to reach out to ensure that those kinds of resources or, or services that were being received previously in school or through professional um, services are continued, you know, the internet and virtual means of technology. So let me ask you just a bigger question. All of these things are really geared to helping people take matters in their own hands, try and combat the situation, establish means of individual connections with professional assistance where needed. But this is happening on a population-wide basis. This is affecting everybody. The scale is massive. Are there things that can be done or are being done or should be done that can reach a population on an epidemiologic basis? Is there a way to be able to provide support in an expanded scale? So you mentioned the fact that there's many resources that are available on websites of different organizations. That entails them taking the initiative and then applying it. Are there things that one could try and do? For example, when we know we have a pollution problem with industrial you know, smoke or pollution or some kind of meteorologic aberration, there's communications that go out you know, over the uh, media of what to do, stay inside. It's, you know, if you have, if you have asthma or any kind of respiratory, there are guidance. Is there a population-wide process that has been in, developed or envisioned that could be used in such instances where you have a whole population which is being affected, albeit in different ways by this crisis? You know, I, that's a, a great question. And one of the things that muddies the water there, of course, is that the information changes and there's a lot of inform- misinformation that has been delivered over time. So the number one thing, first of all, I would say people turn off most of the news and stick with, quite frankly, the CDC's website. And the CDC actually has excellent information for the fa- level of the family and children and all the way up for how to manage on a day-to-day basis. The other thing is there are national associations and organizations that are coming together to deliver some uh, recommendations and outline plans and prospectively how things should go, not just for managing now, but for getting back into the routines and to a changed and different world later. Uh, Yesterday, for example, we had a long webinar with the National Association of Independent Schools, where there were hundreds of school administrators and uh, educators on, and we talked about managing now with the kids and families and then what to put in place going forward and especially what's the response that's going to be needed for when kids come back to school. So organizations like this and other national level organizations should be rolling out their plans and, you know, or, or their, what they are recommending for systems and for families to do. I'd so, imagine our APAs are doing that too, but I yeah. haven't been on their sites in a bit. Yeah, but it sounds like with everything else associated with this epidemic, everybody is scrambling to get these things up to uh, speed and uh, able to be implemented. But we were really caught unawares and we're playing catch up. Certain of these organizations are calling on experts. I mean, I have to say this organization yesterday had an expert on racial bias and issues like that. And, And because there are kids like who are in the minority, whether it's LGBTQ kids um, who are children of color, immigrant children, 
they are at risk because they're marginal. They felt marginalized in school. Now they're really isolated. There's a period of feeling relief for being at home at the moment and not having to be in school. But at the same time, it's going to, it makes it worse. So we were talking about things to do specifically for these youth now and also later. Even if the, the content is being developed, how is it able to how be to implemented? Out? And how, yeah. how, how are people able to be sort of driven to those sources, you know, whether it's a website or whether it's a, you know, a broadcast program? Well, you know, I think this pandemic is, I hope, causing people to stand back and think through what really are your values. And as a, as a society and nation, what are our values? And one of the things that will drive resilience at this time and resilience not being that we come back to everything the way it was, because it's not going to be. We know businesses are go- going. We know families are losing uh, family members. There's so much that's changing because of this. Resilience is being able to live our values, engage in the self-care and coping, be flexible in the way we look at things and manage things and have hope. And then also then to cultivate a sense of optimism for as much as things will be changed and there's some devastation happening here, optimism that we can come together and we can move forward in a purposeful way that makes sense and is healthy for ourselves and others. This is critical. And this is the message we should be getting from the top. So Anne-Marie, you've been talking about how people can take control of the situation by uh, understanding themselves and uh, developing uh, a plan and a schedule of activities within the home. For people that are living in, among families, you know, they don't have the isolation that people who live alone might have, but they also have the issue of dealing with their spouse dealing with their children, dealing with elderly parents if they're living with them, and all the tensions that can arise in that context. So on one hand, there's guidance for how an individual can sort of take stock of themselves and develop a way for managing it. But then when you're having to deal with the family constellation, and at the extreme, you know, we've heard of concerns about domestic violence rates increasing, or there's also the potential for elder abuse uh, occurring because people's uh, tempers are, are, are uh, patients are afraid and their tempers are become short, cabin fever. If you could just comment on how to think about approaching the family constellation in order to be able to manage this in a way that's helpful. Yes, this is a, that's an excellent question. And in fact, I see it even in my own family where we have elderly parents living with my brother's family and, and his kids. My sister and I are calling in her. She's from Minnesota. I'm here in New York. They're in Florida. We call in and give them directions every day of what to do. Well, you know, sometimes that's received well and sometimes it isn't. Everybody is in a situation of like stress and some stress and crisis. Here's where you have to step back and think about who are all the people in the home with you or those who may be living uh, you know, away from you, but you're in touch with and you're keeping watch on. What is it that you actually want? What you want is to get through this in a healthy way. Think about what is best that each person can contribute. It may be that the elderly parents are great for sitting and talking about the good old days and telling stories to your children. And maybe your children, it's time for them to put them on a uh, family uh, history sort of project while they're at home for a few weeks. 
of recording grandma and grandpa's musings about what it was like growing up in the 40s and 50s. Who knows? That could be made into something that's very meaningful. Think about what can be contributed by way of each individual spouse, let's say, who's better at handling um, cooking and who's better at handling the kids and try to then cultivate these types of roles for one another. It's also important to give each person space and validate whatever their unique worries or concerns are because they will be different and that's okay. It's valid what they're experiencing. Once you listen and hear that out, then you all can work towards how to work together for different things that have to happen so that each person feels taken care of. But when it's all just unscheduled, unmanaged, just happening free for all, that's when it gets on people's nerves. The biggest thing is to listen to one another, validate what the worries and concerns may be, and then ask, what would you like to do while we're all here in this situation? And I think, Jeff, another point is that when people don't have everybody in the house with them, but they're living alone, whether it's a young adult or it's a family member who's on their own, whether in their 30s, 40s, 50s, what have you, and the elderly who may be alone. I just talked to a friend whose 89-year-old mother lives alone in Brooklyn. The question there is to how to keep in touch with these folks. Some, my uh, One of our family members living alone is in their late 80s and doesn't have any kind of social media, doesn't have an iPad. So we're all taking turns calling, all right? Reach out to the people who are alone. This crisis is imposing its disruptive effects on us, both psychologically as well as physically, in terms of a threat of infection and the disruption to our society and way of life. And it's going on for some period of time, weeks, maybe even months. And we've talked about the number of ways in which different people, different types of people, different situations can cope with it. But we're going to come out of this, and then the question is, what are the long-term effects going to be? Is this going to be something where there is a collective type of PTSD, or is this simply going to be a memory that we have of what we sort of live through? Are there going to be lingering effects that are going to be disadvantageous or, or problematic and, and impairing people's sort of psychological well-being? That's an excellent question. And one of the things in child psychology, in our circles in psychiatry, we've been talking about, think about it this way. When I was in first grade, Kennedy was assassinated, John Kennedy. We can think about where we were when Martin Luther King was assassinated. We can think about where we were on 9-11. These are what are called flashbulb memories where exactly have this vivid recollection of a single event in time. And for some folks, it defined that time of life for them. So there's going to be like right now, high school seniors, graduating college students, our medical students. This is what they'll remember when they think back to those years. But the difference is, is that this is not just something that was catastrophic and, and traumatic, but brief. This is prolonged, it's right? Prolonged. It wasn't a single incident, but it's a period of time. So it's like the Great Depression was to our parents or World War II was to our parents. Right. So it's an era in a sense. So we have to think about that. Now, the thing about it is we know that actually some people are going to have delayed mourning for losses that are occurring. I, I mean, again, I'll be personal. My uncle died last week. Uh, that's the Irish side. His three sisters, my mom and her two sisters, 
wanted to be with him and couldn't be with him. And they can't do the morning and the wakes the way the Irish do, which is, you know, a celebration of life as much as it's crying. Think about that in different faiths and different cultural practices. People are not able to bury and mourn their dead the way that they would like. So this is going to be prolonging grief and also delaying when they can do their memorials. That So once everything opens up, you're going to have that. And you're going to have people who are experiencing that loss for a while, and the grief may get complicated. Separately from that, then, are the traumatic experiences for those who may have gone through. Some folks who might have been on you know, respirators and such, for some, that's a very traumatic experience, as you know, Jeff. And it's something that, they, that can cause some post-traumatic reactions. We've got to see, and we have to, you know, we have to be prepared to allow people to emote and allow people to process over the longer term. And again, have our mental health resources ready to receive if there are post-traumatic stress reactions over time. We have to be there for that. And we're especially telling schools they have to be ready because kids are not going to come into the next grade level necessarily in the place where they should be. And so there's going to be a wide variation of children's abilities and what they've incorporated while on this extended homeschooling. There's going to be a wide change and difference in the way kids are responding when they get back to school in the fall. So we all have to be ready to roll with that and make adaptations in our expectations for folks as we move forward. So, well, uh, the initial concern and focus in terms of medical interest and attention and and protection is on the threat of the infection and contagion and preservation of life. The long outcome and the aftermath is really going to be characterized by what psychological impacts it's had and how severe and how debilitating they may be and what can be done to mitigate that. We don't know, but this will be a generational effect that'll it'll define us uh, in the, and historically in the long run. We're hearing about the economic impact that's going to be a long term to recover. But there's also, remember, not just psychological, but educational. This will have an impact on people's development, their mental state and their behavior. Well, thank you, Dr. Anne-Marie Albano, for a wonderful discussion. And thank you for all the listeners. And I hope this was, uh, I found this informative and, uh, uh, and interesting. This is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. Mm-hmm.